I see families visiting and some newcomers today, so let me just make a, a note about what we do. We spend about 45 minutes studying the Bible, and we do this because the Bible diagnoses us properly. You go to a doctor, and the doctor opens you up and looks at you through x-rays and looks at your skin and taps your chest and your back. And The Bible is what does this through the work of the Holy Spirit, but God doesn't just do it immediately to you. God does it through a man, and I'm the man here. Um, and the purpose of this is not for you to leave thinking that you're self-righteous and good. The purpose of this is so that the secrets of your hearts are exposed. Why? So that you can be humiliated in my presence? No. Um, It's so that you can go to God and ask him for forgiveness, and you see why Jesus' righteousness matters to us. We don't need righteousness from Jesus if we think we're self-righteous. But if we see who we are, then Jesus gets precious to us because we realize we're hopeless. You say, oh, I'm not hopeless. Maybe you're hopeless. I'm not hopeless. And I say, yeah, I am hopeless, but so are you. And that's why everybody comes to the cross of Christ because we're hopeless. Now, this is a particularly important thing for me to say today because we're in the middle of a section where Jesus is talking. Now, as I preach, you're going to think it's not Jesus talking. You're going to think it's me talking. But my point is to take the words of Jesus and to bring them to us today in such a way that we feel what it was like to be there. Not feel what it was like, like we get chills up and down our spine and like hot flashes, you know. But feel what it was like to be there in that we understand what he was saying so clearly that we feel his righteousness, his mercy, and his love. If you open your Bibles to Matthew 23, and if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, it's up on there. We're going through woe sections. What is a woe? Well, a woe is not good. It's, it's, it's a condemnation that's sad. Woe to you. Um, and Jesus is giving woes out. Um, and he's giving woes out to the religious leaders of his time. They're called scribes and Pharisees. And uh, there are eight of these woes. We've studied a couple of them. We're going to study a couple of them today. We'll finish them in a little while. It takes up most of the chapter. Um, Who are the scribes and Pharisees? The scribes and Pharisees were the religious leaders of the time. They were the ones who uh, officiated at the worship as were gathered for worship today. They were the ones that preached. They were the ones that read Scripture. They were the ones that oversaw the offerings. They were the religious leaders. But this was at a time when the Roman Empire was uh, occupying uh, Judea, Jerusalem. And so these religious leaders um, also mediated the relationship between their people and the Romans. So they weren't just religious leaders. They were the muckety-mucks in their community. They were the, the ones that everybody wanted to have officiate at their wedding, come to their wedding, come to their party, come to their retirement thing. They were the, the, the public leaders, all right? And Jesus is pronouncing eight woes to them. Now, if you get eight woes, 
it's probably an indication that things aren't good with you. Especially if it's Jesus that gives them to you. And things weren't good with the scribes and Pharisees. Now, who were the scribes and Pharisees? Well, I've made clear to you that they're the leaders. They're the ones that everybody looked up to and everybody wanted to have at their parties and at their bar mitzvahs or whatever they had. Um, But the scribes and Pharisees today would be pastors. They would be Christian publishers. They would be professors at seminary. Scribe. All right? The people that make a living off writing. Um, In Bloomington, they would probably be uh, some combination of university professors and priests and preachers. Now, you say, university professors, really? And I say, yeah, um, it doesn't translate completely because university professors, as a rule, make no claim to be religious. And so you have to be able to translate all of this across 2,000 years. Um, But there are people that make a living off of, let me put it like this. They're the information class. They're the chattering class. They're the talkers. The people that make a living from their mouths. All right? And that's what I'm doing right now. So they're me. Now, what was going on with them? Well, look at the woes, starting with verse 13. I don't think that's up, but... Um, listen to verse 13. The first one that Jesus says is, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, hypocrite isn't a good word. Hypocrite means you say one thing and you do another. You have no integrity. Hypocrites, Jesus says, because why? Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. For you don't enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You ever had a door that you needed to get through to eat? And there are people talking in the door? And you you hope maybe at some point they'll get hungry. And they'll go in to eat, and then you'll be able to go in and eat too. But no, they stand in the door and they talk. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees were supposed to guide people to heaven, to the kingdom of God. They were supposed to be the ones that you went to for knowledge and truth that leads you to salvation and to heaven. But what Jesus says about them is they're hypocrites. They claim to be those leaders But they shut off the kingdom of heaven from men and they won't go in themselves and they won't allow anybody else to go in. Pretty awful thing, isn't it? So that's the first woe, but Jesus isn't done. The second woe is verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and in case they didn't have it the first time, he says it again, you hypocrites. Because why? You devour widows' houses Even while for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you shall receive greater condemnation. So, there were religious leaders who devoured widows' houses. Now today, we're we're hypersensitive about things. Uh, Nobody makes any jokes about Barack Obama because he's black and can't make any jokes about race. All right? And nobody is able to hear this verse and what it says, it says you devour widowers' houses. Well, it doesn't say that, does it? It says widows' houses. Now, why does Jesus single out widows as the ones that they prey upon? Well, because being a widow makes you what? I mean, nobody wants me to say this. Being a widow makes you weak. You're vulnerable. In what way are you vulnerable? Are there no legal protections for widows? Well, no. You're vulnerable because you're lonely and because you're weak. 
And so people who are vulnerable because they're lonely and weak, that's perfect. I am a preacher. And I say long prayers, so I go in their houses and I make long prayers with them. And then what do they do? They leave their wealth to the church. It's worked. I was talking to a man a number of years ago who works at the foundation for Indiana University. It's the most beautiful building in all of Bloomington. On the bypass, you know that beautiful building, right? And he was telling me how they do their work there. You know what the foundation does is it goes to widows and to rich people who are lonely. He told me this. Not thinking about it, he wasn't reading this text of Scripture and then explained it to me. He just said, rich people, generally, you have to stroke their egos and you have to befriend them. But what they really want is a friend. So you act like you're their friend and they, for their part, give you their money. But they don't give it to you, they give it to your employer, which is Indiana University. The same thing goes on in churches. Look at Trinity Broadcasting Network. Notice how at the center of Trinity Broadcasting Network is something called what? Seed faith. Most of the sermons you listen to, as you watch, you'll hear this mentioned. And seed faith is where if you are at home, lonely, they'll act as if they're there and they'll look right in your eyes. And the camera's there and the immediacy is there. Much much more intimate watching TVN than it is being here today. All right, and they'll look right in your eyes and they'll say, wherever you are. And they'll say, if you give $10, the Lord will give back to you 100 And if you give $100, the Lord will give back. And who's watching that? Well, I can tell you it's not, it's not Trump. It's not Bill Gates. Bill Gates isn't hoping that if he gives a billion, he'll get $100 billion back. He has his own ways of doing that. It's the weak, it's the oppressed, it's the poor, it's Africans, it's widows. That's who it is. And so this is the second well. You devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. You act as if you're a religious leader and that they should be deferential to you and you worm your way into their trust and then they leave their houses to you. All right, that's the second one. The third woe is verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, in case they didn't get it the first or the second time. Jesus, not me. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte. What's a proselyte? A proselyte is a convert. It's somebody that you've evangelized. You go across sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Now, remember how I said I'm trying to get you to be able to transport yourself back to the time of Christ, hearing this as the people at the time heard it, right? Is this good? Are we on an upward cruise? Is this every day in every way the world is getting better and better? No, it's not. These are the religious leaders. They won't help people come to God and to be saved. They try to keep them from believing in Jesus. They won't believe in Jesus themselves and they won't let anybody through the door. They're devouring widows' houses while doing long prayers and looking very religious. Okay? 
And then when they do try to make a convert, the convert is not to God and it's not to Christianity, Judaism. It's not to heaven and the kingdom of God, but it is what? <clears throat> it's to themselves. The people are converted to themselves. And what are they like? Well, when they're converted, what? They're twice as much sons of hell as the religious leaders. So the religious leaders are sons of hell, and their converts are twice sons of hell. Now, mind you, this is not me saying this. This is the master physician, Jesus Christ, diagnosing perfectly, perfectly, what was true of the church and its leadership at the time that he lived. So that's the third woe. Now we move to the fourth one for this week. And this is the Word of God. It's eternally true. This is a long one. This goes from verses uh, 16 to 22. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the offering upon it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And he who swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. All right, so that's the fourth woe. Now the fifth one. And we're going to study that this week also. The fifth one. Woe to you, verse 23, scribes and Pharisees, and in case they hadn't gotten it the other times, Hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat, a fruit fly, a mosquito, and swallow a camel. All is not well in Judea and Jerusalem. All is not well in the true church. You have to remember, this was the true church. These were the people of God. All the gods of the nations were idols, but Jehovah, the Jews' God, was the maker of heaven. So here we have the true religion. There's only one. The true God, the true book of God, the true people of God. They've all been circumcised. They all observe everything that God said, even down to tithing their mint and their dill and their cumin. And this is their condition. And so how do we deal with that sitting here today? Because Christianity is the only true religion. Our God is the only true God. So how do we deal with it? Very, very interesting. If you, um, if you want to read the Bible, 
and learn from it, it's helpful to have somebody next to you who's very, very old in the faith and very wise. And uh, the person I recommend for the Gospels more than anybody else is, is a guy named uh, J.C. Ryle. You can buy him today. It's cheap. We were talking to a, a, a very uh, well, uh, a, a very godly and blessed pastor from Zambia this last week. He met with the pastors' college students and with the elders and pastors. We spent a lot of time with him Thursday and Friday, and uh, it was very interesting. One of the things he does is he goes out in Lusaka, the capital of Zambia, with his church. And they blanket this huge agricultural show that comes to Lazaka every year. Hundreds of thousands of people. They absolutely blanket with literature. And they're very evangelistic. So we asked them, well, what, you know, what things do you hand out? And he, he named a couple of things. And then he said, and, and, and we use a lot of things by J.C. Ryle. <laughs> so here's this dude, you know, a couple hundred years old, his writing couple hundred years old, and they think that's what Zambians will really hear truth from. Well, I was reading J.C. Ryle, and I do that every single Sunday before I preach to you, uh, and he's short. You know, don't be intimidated. Oh, well, the preacher reads for a living, so it's probably like a thousand words for every verse. No, it's just tiny, tiny punches. But let me tell you, they're blockbusters. Every single time. Beautiful. J.C. Ryle. Did you get it? J.C. Ryle. All right. And uh, this time, I was reading him on this text, and he says, it's a little paragraph, and it has a parenthesis at the beginning and a parenthesis at the end, and he says, uh, permit me to, to, to wonder something, or permit me to say something, or I wonder whether. So he's like being parenthetical and a little bit on edge, and he says this. He says, you know, as I read this, I wonder whether you would understand me saying, you think he's gotten postmodern, like he's pastor of a Redeemer church, you know. I wonder whether, you know, it's not at all like Ryle. But I wonder whether our Lord was being prophetic in what he said. And whether he was addressing the church today in some of these woes. And, you know, my response is, you think? <laughs> you know, you wonder? And then he really shocked me because the next thing he said was, because it does seem like a lot of these apply to the Roman Catholic Church. And I thought, oh, brother, I don't think we need to go to Rome to have these sayings, these woes apply. I don't think we need to leave this sanctuary this morning. I certainly have no trouble identifying with what Jesus condemns. I have no trouble hearing his woes. You say, well, that's good because he's speaking to the religious leaders. I say, what about you? All right, let's get in it. If J.C. Ryle says maybe they apply today, maybe they do. So how would they apply? Well, verse 16, woe to you blind guides. Now, do you, want a, do you want a guide that's blind? Huh? If you're going canoeing in the boundary waters and you hire a guide, or if you're going fishing out on the ocean, or if you're going down the Colorado River in a raft, do you want a blind guide? 
If you're going into a rapids with a blind guide, what's going to happen if you're in a raft? At best, you're going to be flipped. And at worst, you may be dead. Are you going to get any elk if you have a blind guide? Not likely. Now, what if this guide isn't leading you in hunting or fishing or on a raft? What if this guide is leading you to the salvation of your soul? What if this is the man that you trust to lead you to heaven? Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obligated. Now, do you have a good nose? You have a good nose? Some people have bad noses. My mother's lost all sense of smell. But my dad had a very good nose. And any time you see the scribes and the Pharisees perking up their ears when gold is mentioned, because you know that's what's going on here. You know, whatever you, what? What did it say? Whatever you swear by the temple, you don't have to keep. Whatever vow you take by the gold of the temple, you're obligated. Whoa, that's not hard to understand, is it? Is it? What's going on there? Well, obviously, there's some reason that the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, want people to have a particular fear about the wealth of the church house. In other words, there's something about the wealth of the church house that's more important than the church house itself. And you say, what do you mean church house? And I say, well, I mean this sanctuary. That's what we call it, church house. You say, yeah, but it's a temple back then. Okay, fine. Let's go back then. Let's call it the temple. That's what Jesus said. It's the temple. And so what they're saying is the temple, you can swear by the temple, but you can't swear by the gold of the temple. And then he goes on and similar thing. He says, whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the offering upon it, he's obligated. So again, you can't swear by the communion table, but boy, if the offering's here... Do you have a good nose? What's going on here? What's well, always this way? Always the religious leaders end up well paid, fat, and secure. That's what happens. Do you understand that? Now, we don't know whether it's particularly the gold given to the church or the gold that gilds the church that decorates it, that makes it impressive. We do know the temple was extremely impressive because remember the disciples said to Jesus, look at this temple. And Jesus then responded saying, tear this temple down and in three days, what? In other words, Jesus spoke dismissively about the very thing that they were caught up in and thought was their glory as a race. Do you understand that? Look at the temple. Jesus says, tear it down. And so when he's tried, they say, one of the accusations against Jesus is, he said he was going to tear the temple down. You know, it would be like going into London and saying you're going to pull down St. Paul's Cathedral. The national honor is at stake in that place. 
And so here they are saying you can swear by the temple, but not the gold of the temple. You can swear by the altar, but not the offering on the altar. And what's in common between the two? Well, what's in common is both the gold of the temple and the offering. Help me. Do you understand that? Because why? Well, let me tell you something. I hate to disappoint you, but it's not going to do you any good to swear by the box. That's what, those of you who are new, that's what we lovingly refer to this building as, the box. I mean, who's going to, like, be intimidated at violating the box? You know? And, and what, would you, what would you be referring to if you referred to the gold of the box? Probably the guitars. Maybe an amp, not two amps, just one. There's probably only one that's worth anything. Right? Are there two? Oh, there are two. I was just told by the musicians. I mean, what is the gold of this place? The gold is probably the land, right? But has anybody ever seen a church that puts pictures of land on the front of their bulletin? a joke. Now you know why churches are built beautifully and then decorated with gold. Because a pastor doesn't have status until he has a beautiful church and lots of gold decoration. Do you understand that? Now the other status of a pastor is the number of people, but you know, you're not going to take, take a vow by the number of people at the temple. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's the gold of the temple or the temple. It's the offering on the altar or the altar. And so what the, what, the, what the Pharisees and scribes are saying is, look, money and wealth and status are the things that will really force you to pay your vows. Not the temple and not the altar. Now, what's wrong with this? Well, the first thing that's wrong with it is it's obvious that everybody is uh, conjugating their vows very carefully, right? It's obvious that everybody is looking for a way. Are, are you with me? It's obvious that the thing that all these people have in common is what? They're trying to escape what? They're trying to escape having to keep their word. There's absolutely no way you have this culture developing unless people are trying to be able to say one thing and do another. Right? Why are you talking about when the oaths are binding and when they aren't? I thought an oath was binding. How in the world do you get into a situation where people are saying, well, you know, an oath for the altar is not binding, but an oath for the gift on the altar is binding, an oath on the temple is not binding, an oath on the gold of the temple is binding. It's just insane. They're a bunch of liars. Because why? Well, do you remember earlier in Matthew, Jesus said this to them. Jesus said in chapter 5, he said, again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, 
or by the earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair white or black. That's changed. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, and anything beyond these is of evil. This is why we have that statement, let your yea be yea and your nay, nay. And that's the name of my grandson. His name is Nathan. We call him nay, nay. All right. So what happened was the Jews had developed as a national people a character trait, which was to be very scrupulous about when their word was bound and when it wasn't. And it wasn't enough for them to simply let their yes, yes, and their no, no. But they then would take vows by Jove, by God, by the temple, by the gold of the temple, by the altar, by the offering on the altar. I'm going to come to your house tomorrow and fix your sink. And you know, the whole point of it is that they're not going to come to your house and fix your sink. Otherwise, why are they saying, by God, I'll, you know, why are they making oaths? Because they can't be trusted. Right? Now, I'm going to make a point here that I think is important for this text. Remember how I said we don't want anybody to make any generalizations about widows, but Jesus made a generalization about widows? Remember this? We don't think that's right. How could Jesus make a generalization about widows? They prey on widows. Okay, here's another one. You go back and you read Matthew Henry, and Matthew Henry says at this point, what? Matthew Henry says it was known historically at the time that the Jews, as a race, were constantly doing this without, with oaths and vows and promises. It was so commonly known that a Roman historian at the time wrote about this part of the Jewish character. Now, if it's wrong to generalize about widows, it's like wrong in spades to generalize about Jews. So guess what? Matthew Henry, again, centuries old, it's safe. Holocaust hadn't happened. So he goes in and makes the statement that this was part of their character. Isn't that the point that Jesus is making? But Jesus doesn't say Jews. He says, what? Jewish religious leaders. And so are the people going to have a different character than the religious leader? No. But guess what? Every single commentary on this text written today has absolutely no mention of that. Listen, my wife hates for me to say this, but I'm going to say it. Any idiot knows the things that comedians joke about. And that's why everybody laughs at comedians. <laughs> comedians have to be honest. Jesus was honest. Preachers should be honest. And if preachers are talking to you about your character, they should nail you. Because a comedian will. Do you understand that? If a comedian doesn't nail you, a comedian isn't funny and doesn't get paid. And so the church shouldn't be the place that lies about the national character of Jews, about widows, and about whites. When I used to live in a low-income housing project where most people didn't have my skin color, I heard a joke I love. And here's the joke. How many wasps, that's a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, how many wasps does it take to change a light bulb? 
two. One to call the electrician and the other to keep the martinis cold. There's another one. How many husbands does it take to change a light bulb? Only one. He stands there and holds the bulb and expects the world to revolve around him. (laughs) How many feminists does it take to change a light bulb? That's not funny. (laughs) How many Jewish mothers does it take to change a light bulb? None. I'll just sit here in the dark. Do you see? Comedians are honest. Let me tell you, South Africans, you have besetting sins as a nation. There's a South African with us. Well, actually, a whole family of them. And there are specific sins to your national character. Indians, Native Americans, specific sins. Whites, Presbyterians. Any idiot knows what the sins of Presbyterians are. And they're disgusting. Jews were very careful about what? Truth and their word. And what gave their word weight was what? Money, 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 money. And Jesus nailed them. When you go into a doctor, I say this all the time. What do you want the doctor to do? Let you keep your clothes on? Is that the kind of doctor you want to go to? Somebody that always makes sure, first and foremost, that your pride is kept intact. Is that the kind of doctor you want? When you go into a church, what do you want from a preacher? Somebody that keeps your pride intact and doesn't make you strip? And doesn't know who you are and would never have the audacity to say that if you're a widow, you have certain vulnerabilities? Jesus is honest. And he says that money is what made them keep their word. Now, here's what I think is very funny. We look down at them and we say, well, that's disgusting. I mean, those people, in order to have anything they said be true, they had to swear I mean, I don't take oaths. Yeah, you know why you don't take oaths? Because nothing's sacred to you except money. You don't call down God, not because you're honest. Think about how dishonest you are. You. Think about how dishonest. I sat in that room and thought about how dishonest I was this morning while you were worshiping. I thought about asking all of you to come to me with all the things I've said I would do that, haven't done, that I have not done. But boy, I'm righteous. You know why? Because I never swore by the temple or the gold of the temple. I'm righteous because I have a temple that doesn't have gold. I don't bother swearing. I don't bother taking oaths. I don't bother vowing. Here's an interesting thing. Not only are we dishonest and we don't keep our word, and you say, oh, I do. And I say, well, there might be a couple of you that do. But let me tell you, you have some other sin that I don't know about yet. But Jesus will get to that soon. All right. Most of you say things all the time as if they're true. And you know very well you're not going to fulfill them. And the reason you do this is because you want to be a people pleaser. That's why you do it. Now, we had a couple of years ago a man on our elders board whose role was to be the people pleaser. 
And everybody made him be the people pleaser, and he served the function perfectly. It was Wayne Huck. Okay? And everybody loves people pleasers. I've never, ever heard of anybody that doesn't love Wayne Huck. Now, this was at a time when our church was very, very tight. I mean, we were wound so tight, it was about time for the rubber band to break. And so we had to dot every I and cross every T, all right? And where that is especially important is in the elders' meetings. And so we had all these dots that needed to go on I's and all these T's that needed to be crossed. And who had the time for it? So whenever an I needed to be dotted, we said, Wayne, would you dot that I for us? And Wayne said, oh, yes, I'm happy to dot that I for you. Whenever a T needed to be crossed, we'd say, Wayne, would you cross that T for us? And he'd say, I'll, I'll, I'll handle that. And then what happened was Wayne began to sink under the weight of it. Now, it wasn't dots for I's and, and crosses for T's. It was more like, uh, you know, would you do one final copy of the bylaws for us? And I don't even remember what all it was. And pretty soon, Wayne would come in the elders' meetings like doubled over. And he couldn't stand straight because there was all this work that we dumped on him and every meeting, he'd sit there and he'd say, I haven't done it yet, but I intend to. I'm sorry. I haven't done it yet, but I intend to. I'm sorry. And he'd just say this over and over again. And I'm listening to him one day. I, I thought to myself, and I said, you know, Wayne, uh, it's not your fault. It's my fault. It's our fault. The, the whole reason we asked you to do these things is not because we thought you would. We never thought for a minute you'd do them. But we wanted them off our shoulders, and so you were the scapegoat. You were the one that we dumped everything on and said, well, that one's done. And Wayne was a trooper. He, he took on all the jobs that we didn't want to do. And then if we wanted to, we could get on our high horse and look at Wayne and say, Wayne, when are you going to ever do the things you say you're going to do? And even that made us feel good. Now, you look at me and you say, that's, that's disgusting. And I say, look, I've been a pastor for 25 years. I've been with many elders boards, even boards of churches having problems that I go in to help. All right. And I'm telling you, there is a man that plays that role on every single elders board. Don't look at me like we're monsters. There's somebody in your house who is the Keystone Kid that gets all the blame of the house. One is wicked, so the rest of you can be self-righteous. Psychologists will tell you this. You know, there's somebody in your uh, department. There's somebody in, in your shipping room. There's, there's always somebody who everybody loves and everybody dumps on. And life depends upon them saying that they will do things that every single person knows they will never do. Do you understand this? We are not people of our word. And this is not just true of us as, as Americans. It's true of us as evangelical Christians. I was talking to the publisher of a Christian news magazine a couple of years ago about a mission agency that our family has had a close relationship with. And he said, all over Africa, there are people that are furious and disillusioned with Christians because that mission agency has promised thing after thing after thing after thing and has never fulfilled it. They'll set up a tournament of soccer teams in South Africa, all right? 
and they'll promise wonderful prizes of uniforms for their team. And then when the contest is over, the uniforms never come. They tell this man, we'll give you an audited financial statement so you can look at our ministry. And he said, year after year, they won't send me an audited financial statement. He said, finally, I got one and I found out that over 50% of their income was spent flying the man that leads the organization back and forth on his jaunts to Africa. You say, well, that's an awful mission. I say, listen, people, we are not people of our word. You aren't. I'm not. And we don't bother taking oaths and vows. We don't say, by God, I'll do, you know, I'll fix your sink. We just say, I'll come on over and fix your sink. It is true, some of you never break your word. And if you say you're going to show up to fix the sink, it is fixed. And those people are worth their weight in gold. There was one of them here yesterday cleaning up the yard. Everybody had the box bash and then left. The yard was strewn with all this crud. And there was a man here yesterday. Probably only his wife and children know he was here. And that man is a man of his word. Sometimes I say about people, I'm asked a lot to give uh, recommendations for people because we've got graduate students who go out and you get to know people while they're here and you're a pastor so people trust your word. Sometimes I ask about people and I, sometimes I have the freedom to say about someone, he will never promise more than he delivers. He will always promise less than he delivers. Do you know who is a man like that? Well, I'm not going to I'm not going to I'm not going to name names. This is the nature of truth. And in America today, if you look at marriages. What is a prenup? What is it? It is promising beforehand that you are not a man or woman of your word. Because you are hedging your bets so that you can get out of it clean. A prenuptial agreement is intentionally taking vows till death with no commitment to fulfill the vows. Why so many contracts in America? And it's very interesting. The contracts are never by by the temple, by the gold of the temple, by God. The contracts are you can sue me if... In other words, the Jews at least had God and money involved in their vows and oaths. We've dispensed entirely with God. And it's just money. That's the only thing that makes us keep our word. Right, Mike? Is that right? It's absolutely right. Now, is that the only vow that's here? It's not. The other one is what? The other one is, he says, it's not up there. Skip it over another. He says, Woe to you, scribes and fairies, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. On this text, this is what Matthew Henry says. Well, I should read one more verse. He then goes on and says, the final verse, you what? You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, what is a gnat? We don't know. It could be a mosquito. 
Our, our kitchen currently has an infestation of fruit flies. Ah, we don't have any fruit. We're not fruitful. No, that's a joke. <laughs> and they're obnoxious. They get up your nose. They get in your mouth. They get in your ears. They're tiny. So look at the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders, and they know from the Old Testament that gnats are unclean and therefore forbidden. You can't eat them. All right. What else is an unclean animal that you can't eat? A camel. So you got the tiniest animal that's unclean and the largest animal is unclean. And boy, they get out their gauze cloth. And when they're pouring their wine in case when you're stamping on the grapes to make the wine, a fruit fly gets crushed, they strain it. So they would, you know, they never, never drink. And then, and the camel is like legs of splay. A camel is like getting swallowed by them. Now, he's not weird for laughing. You're weird for not laughing. Because Jesus is being sarcastic, satirical, ironic. Jesus is shaming them. You strain out a net and swallow a camel. It's a ludicrous thought. And that's what the religious leaders were like. Here's what Matthew Henry says. He says, blind guides. He says, this is a proverbial saying by which he, Jesus, beautifully describes the affected scrupulousness. What is an affect? Not an effect, but an affect. An affect is copying a posture. It's, it's play acting. It's, it's drama. It's, it's, it's making like you're something that you're not. Okay. He beautifully describes the affected scrupulousness. What's scrupulousness? It's being like unbelievably tight. All right. He says, Jesus here beautifully describes the affected scrupulousness of hypocrites about trifling matters. For they utterly shrink from very small faults, as if a single transgression appeared to them more revolting than a hundred deaths. And yet they freely permit themselves and others to commit the most heinous crimes. They act as absurdly as if a man were to strain out a gnat and swallow a cow. How do we do that? You don't do that. How do I do that? Okay? Now are you free to think? How do I do that? Well, here's how I do it. Go down and pick it at the abortion clinic. Right? Do not open my mouth to my neighbors whose souls are headed to hell. Big show of being concerned about little babies that are being killed. Absolutely no concern about my neighbors who are going to hell. Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body. But fear the one who can cast body and soul into hell. As a church, oh, we're very concerned about orphans. We're very concerned about special needs babies and Koreans and Ethiopians. We have absolutely no concern about those who are lost. Absolutely none. Strain out a gnat, swallow a camel. I'm sorry, we were talking about me, weren't we?
mint and dill and cumin. Can't you just pick at them? They come into church, and they had used three uh, sprigs of mint, gone out onto the back deck, broken off a branch, a sprig, put it in the iced tea, crushed it, and then they thought to themselves, there were probably ten mint leaves on that sprig. And then they pluck one, and they put it in a little baggie, in the refrigerator, and that Sunday when they go to church, they bring the baggie, and there are what? If they've had iced tea maybe four nights that week, there are four tea leaves there. Okay? You understand? And then dill and cumin. Can't you just imagine them? Now, if I were to talk about how the government of the United States does this, you'd all be with me, because that's what preachers are supposed to do. They're always supposed to be prophetic about people outside of the church and always tender and very solicitous towards people inside the church. If you want to understand this church, this church as a principle does the opposite. We're very tender about people outside of the church, making allowances for them. But one another, we're very tough. Oh, we love each other. Let me tell you, we love each other, but we're tough with each other. We're honest. Now, let's look at the government. The government makes you use booster seats for your children, right? And then approves of the slaughter of unborn children in the wombs of their mother, pulled apart and sucked into a vacuum and put down the sewers of our nation at a rate of 1.3 million a year. Does that sound like straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel? If that child's brought out of that abortuary and manages to live, don't you dare take that child home without putting it in and fastening it. Our nation is very, very concerned about litter, but has adopted all over the country no-fault divorce laws. So you're all with me, right? Well, that's ludicrous. But what about us? What about our homes? What about our hearts? What about us? Listen. Every single one of these woes applies to me and it applies to you. This is who you are. This is who you are. This is you. And as I look around, some of you are Norsky. Some of you are Dutch, eh? Some of you are Canadian. Some of you are white. Some are not white. Some of you are widows. Some of you are bodacious men. Some single, some married. In other words, every single one of us has a certain condition that makes us vulnerable to certain sins. So we are. All right? But let me tell you, these woes don't miss you. They nail you. And if you're a man of your word, let me tell you, you are tithing your mint and dill and cumin and you don't give a rip about souls going to hell. And if you do care and you're evangelistic, you don't give a rip about tithing. Do you understand? The only question is, which one of them apply best to you, not whether they apply to us. Now, here's... Here's where I end and say this to you. This is an evangelistic sermon. 
This is an evangelistic sermon. You go, oh no, that's not how I feel. Generally, when I listen to Billy Graham, I feel hopeful, but I don't feel hopeful at all right now. Franklin Graham, Louis Palau, pick your preacher of choice. I don't feel hopeful at all. I say, yes, you do. And you say, don't tell me, I don't. I say, yes, you do feel hopeful. And you say, why? And I say this, listen. Remember I said at the beginning, you go to a doctor, you don't want a doctor that says, don't worry, you can keep your clothes on and no x-ray machine for you. And I won't touch you. Because my greatest concern is that you feel secure and proud and self-reliant and You don't want a doctor like that. You don't want the gospel given to you without breaking your heart. Because without your heart being broken about who you are and what your character is, you never, ever, ever will love Jesus Christ. So if you've seen that you tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin, and if you've seen that you don't even keep your word, then I'm able to say to you, come to Jesus. Because He always keeps His word. Because He tithes everything. But He doesn't have to because He's the one that receives the tithes. In other words, He has a right sense of proportion. He doesn't major in the minors and minor in the majors. He is mercy incarnate. He is justice incarnate. He is faithfulness incarnate. And all of his righteousness makes up for everything you lack. And your lack is infinitely worse than you know. But I'm not one of those guys that just says, you know, you're much worse off than you realize you are, but God's grace is greater. I want you to know what your sin is. I don't want you hypothetically agreeing, I'm a sinner. I want you to think, I tithe my mint and my dill and my cumin. And I don't give a rip about my next door neighbor. I want you to confess that sin to God. I want you to see that you never keep your word to your wife, that you've told her a hundred million times that tomorrow will be different, and it never is, because you never intended it to be different. Never. That you have all kinds of people you've promised to help fix their car, fix their sink, fix their toilet, re-roof their house, that you have all kinds of people in the hospital that you promised you'll visit and you never, ever visited them. That you stood before the people of God and took a vow that you would cling only to her as long as you both shall live and your eyes every single day are nothing except lust. You do not keep your word. Don't try to fool me because I stand on the word of God. You know the other thing? If you doubt that Jesus is God, there's a very clear proof today that Jesus is God. And that is that finally, through the words of Jesus, you have for the first time in your life heard absolute truth about who you are. Only God could be that truthful. He hasn't pandered to you. He's not said, there, there. At least you realize the problem, and that's half the solution. You know? He's not trying to cover it over. 
is absolutely precise as a diagnostician. Do you understand this? This is God. This is God. God doesn't pander to us. He is fearsome because the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you name me one other religious book in the world, in all the history of the world, that is absolutely truthful. And not just truthful about us 2,000 years later, but truthful specifically about them as a nation right there and about their leaders. Remember, the scribes and Pharisees sometimes were backed into a corner and had to say things that were true to Jesus. You remember what they said about Jesus? They said, teacher, we know you're from God because you never, ever, ever pander to us. You name me one other book. Plato? Donald Trump? Oh, he's truthful. George Bush, every single State of the Union address is pandering to the American people. And so he has an advisor, and the advisor says that we're a bunch of nation of whiners. He has to go! <laughs> Did you see that this last week? Who was it? it wasn't he like Phil Graham, or who was it? Was it Phil Graham? Yeah, he said we're a nation of whiners, and so now he's out. We can't have a president that has advisors that tell the truth about the American national character. I mean, it's, such, it's so true that it's like a duh, a nation of whiners, a duh. And he, he had to go. He's gone. He resigned. He's, he's, he's booted. And then you go to the Bible, and the Bible says you tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin, and you don't have any mercy, and you don't have any justice, and you don't have any faithfulness. And you go, thank God. And then you go to Jesus Christ and you say, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other found I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that's the gospel. That's it. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Are you desperate for his righteousness? Are you desperate for his blood? If his blood was pouring from a fountain up front, would you get up and dive into it? You would have done that with a swimming pool that was cool this last week because you were hot. Are you filthy? And if there was a fountain of the blood of Jesus Christ up here, would you dive into it? To be washed. People, that's the gospel, and I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is who you are, it's who I am, and it's why nothing but the blood of Jesus will save us. After the service, I'm going to be in my office at the end of the hall. I'd love to meet and pray with any of you. Let's pray.